You're listening to a Sovereign Hope Church podcast with pastor and teaching elder Adam Vinson. As you're being seated, I want to invite you to turn in your Bibles once again to Genesis chapter 41. Genesis chapter 41, and then um, I failed to mention earlier, um, Ryan, who works at um, Closeless Traveled, has volunteered to um, keep his eye out for good Christian resources and books that come through that store, and so he's made some of those available at the um, welcome table in the front. So anytime you see books sitting there on that welcome table, um, those are free for you to take. Um, Don't feel bad about taking them. Don't feel bad about taking one every time there's one there. We'd rather you take them. We'd rather the table be empty than there be books sitting there. So feel free to to grab those as you see something that maybe draws your interest, and uh, we'll try to make as many uh, resources available to you um, as possible. I'm going to put our um, notes for today uh, in our Google Drive uh, real quick, so let me do that for those that may want to um, follow along. You can access that information from the back of your bulletin if you'd like. Um, we try to make the slide presentations available for those that want to take notes on top of those slides or um, reference the notes um, at a later time. Um, but then also, if you're ever not here and are following along with the podcast, um, you may want to reference those notes um, that are in that shared folder. So you can always access those um, from any time or any place as long as you have uh, internet connection. Uh, two weeks ago, we had left off with uh, Joseph being in prison. He had uh, been given the ability to interpret the butler and the baker's dreams and uh, had hoped that that would lead to his uh, quick release from the prison, felt like the butler uh, potentially kind of owed him for the grace that he had shown to him as uh, being in control of the prison and showing favor towards the butler and then interpreting his dreams. But we saw that the butler forgot, failed to mention to um, him what was going on, failed to mention to Pharaoh what was going on, and the butler ends up staying um, or Joseph ends up staying in prison for another two years before it comes back up. And so uh, we said that in the midst of the prison, that while he had been in charge of Potiphar's house, he quickly becomes uh, in charge of the prison as well due to his work ethic, due to the wisdom and the discretion that his superiors see. So they give him increased responsibility and power. Um, and we see him using his his unfortunate circumstances as a way to minister to others, right? We said that Um, Rather than sulking and being discouraged and kind of pouting in the corner, he recognizes that his trials have put him in contact with other people that he may not have come come in contact with otherwise. And so he seeks out ways to minister uh, to those in the midst of his trials. And we talked about the implications that that has for us, that we should do the same thing. We should seek to minister to those when we find ourselves in undesirable circumstances. Um, And then we see here in Genesis chapter 41, uh, the tide seems to turn now for Joseph as he has endured much in his early life. He's at um, the age of 30 now. Um, He's been about 13 or 14 years here in Egypt. Uh, He's been a slave. He's been a prisoner. Um, He was hated by his brothers um, and uh, attempted murder took place. And then eventually he's put into... um, uh, the pit, and then sold into slavery. So things have been difficult for him most of his life, and we see the tide kind of turning here in Genesis chapter 41. The title of our sermon today um, is Fruitful Forgetfulness, or Forgetful uh, Fruitfulness. I forget how I labeled it in your notes. I think it's Fruitful Forgetfulness. Yeah, 
Is that right? Okay. Um, but you can also flip it around, and it still makes the same spiritual sense that we're going to talk about today. Uh, forgetful fruitfulness. Um, the summary sentence for today. By remembering that God sovereignly controls all nations in order to protect and provide for his covenant people, we can avoid the bitterness of trials and experience the fruitfulness of our labors. By remembering that God sovereignly controls all nations, and he controls them in a certain way, that he controls them in order to protect and provide for his covenant people, we can avoid the bitterness of trials and experience the fruitfulness of our labors. For our kids, we can trust God in bad times because he controls everything. And what we see in this chapter, um, we see that God is very much in control. Um, He's very much in control of Egypt and the destiny of Egypt. Um, He's not going to uh, leave Egypt to kind of operate independently of his plans. God is very much in control of Egypt and the destiny of Egypt. And as we're going to see today, he's controlling Egypt for the good of his covenant people who have yet to arrive in Egypt. Um, and, And Joseph seems to understand this. Joseph seems to grasp this fact, um, and it's why we see towards the end of the chapter that Joseph is not hanging on to bitterness about how he has gone through these trials. Instead, he's able to examine his circumstances and see God's fruitfulness and God's blessing in the midst of his hard labor. All right, so we're going to unpack that today as we look at the text, remembering that God controls all nations. He does it in a way to protect his people, um, and if we grasp that, that God is in control of everything around us, we can avoid bitterness of trials and instead experience the fruitfulness of our labors. Some introductory notes. We've already said that Joseph is 30 years old at this point. It's been about 13, 14 years since he was back home with his family. Um, Right off the bat here in the text, we see the butler's memory being jogged at a time when Pharaoh would need Joseph most. Um, I think it's intentional that God allows him to forget. I think it's intentional that God doesn't bring Joseph to the attention of Pharaoh prior to these dreams. Um, It's very intentional that God allows that to play out at the appropriate time. Two years later, when the dreams come on, when it's time for the famine uh, to come within seven years, God allows the butler to remember. Um, And it's a a time when Pharaoh is going to be most sensitive to a need for Joseph, right? Like, Joseph... His value to Pharaoh is in his ability to interpret dreams. If the butler mentions Joseph's name two years uh, previously, Pharaoh maybe dismisses it completely. Maybe it falls on deaf ears. Pharaoh's not concerned about the injustice being done to a Hebrew slave. Um, He doesn't have any need for Joseph. There's no value in this Hebrew to Pharaoh. But because God allows it to, to be two years before the butler remembers, now there is value. There, there is a reason for Pharaoh to act and to do something towards this Hebrew slave that the butler talks to him about. And so um, that's one way that we can see God directing the events of this chapter is that uh, Pharaoh only comes to the, uh, to the uh, mindset that Joseph even exists at the, uh, right, at, the, at the right appropriate time, at a time when he's going to be most valuable to Pharaoh. Um, we can also say that God controls the events and responses of this story. Think about it. As I'm reading through this, Uh, Joseph, who Pharaoh doesn't know, has no history with, stands before him and basically tells him that his gods are going to fail him, that within seven years, the prosperity that they're enjoying is going to uh, vanish, and no amount of prayer towards his gods, no amount of trust in the Nile River, which which is their source of life, nothing is going to be able to prevent 
seven years of famine from coming. This is an attack against the Egyptian gods. This is an attack against their way of life and the trust that they put in the Nile River. You'll remember, other famines have come and gone, and where do people flee when there's famine time? They flee to Egypt, right? Egypt has always been able to endure famines because of the Nile River. And here, Joseph stands before Pharaoh and says, it's not going to work this time. You're going to endure famine. Um, And yet, Pharaoh responds favorably to this bad news, right? I mean, Pharaoh could have easily said, I hate that interpretation, like, like, I don't like that at all. Get rid of this guy. Bring somebody else that'll tell me something that I want to hear, right? But, but Pharaoh responds favorably. I think that's a, um, a sign of God directing the events because he doesn't have to respond favorably. Um, we can also see that an unknown foreigner is elevated to power here. I mean, think about that. You've got a guy who's from a different place. He's not Egyptian, and he shows up, and within a few minutes, a, a, a small conversation, Pharaoh says, you know what, you're second in command. I'm going to dismiss everybody that I know, all of my friends who would love to be in this position, everybody that I trust, and I'm going to turn everything over to a guy who I just met, um, who's not even from our country, so I can't even bank on the fact that you have Egypt in your best interest, I'm going to give this, I'm going to give this sole authority to somebody who, who I have no idea who he is. Like there was that kind of uh, impression left upon him in a short conversation. That's God directing the events of this chapter. Um, that, that doesn't happen in any other setting unless God's doing it, right? Nobody appears before our president of the United States and gives him information about something going on in this world, and automatically he's made uh, second in command. Right. You may show appreciation. You may say, hey, thank you so much for making this information available. Uh, we'll do something for you. But to give that kind of authority and power, that's not going to happen. Um, this is completely God at work in Pharaoh's heart. And we know later on in Exodus that God works in Pharaoh's heart the other way too, right? Like he gives, uh, he turns Pharaoh's heart here to show favor towards Joseph. Later, when Moses stands before him, it says that he hardens his heart right? Like he turns it the other direction and will not let uh, Israelite go, the Israelite people go. So, so God's at work in the hearts of Pharaohs here and in the future, and he turns that heart wherever he wants it to go. Scripture attests to that, right? Um, and then just as a reminder before we jump into the text, something that I said a couple of weeks ago, this whole chapter here, it's about God setting the stage for Israel to come to Egypt. The dreams, the interpretation, the famine, the preparation for the famine, all of the things that take place in chapter 41, they're like little minor chapters in this big story. Remember, God told Abraham that that for 400 years, Egypt was going to be a resting place for his people, that they were going to be in bondage to another people, and that they were going to have to endure that as they grew to be a great nation themselves. Remember we said all along that had they not been in Egypt, they would have been swallowed up by the other nations. They would have intermarried and, and the Israelite people would have been done away with. They would have just intermingled, intermarried, and been, and been absorbed into these other nations. God preserves them in Egypt. Remember the Egyptians even want to stay separate from them because they're shepherds and they don't value shepherds very much. And so they, they stay separate and they're allowed to populate and to grow and the whole reason that they're there for 400 years and for that precise 400 years is because the, the sin of the Amorites needs to be filled up in Canaan. All of this is minor chapters in God's big story of bringing judgment upon the land of Canaan. 
and he's going to bring it at the right time when their sin is completely filled up. So the timing of this famine is specific. God's just not arbitrarily throwing famines around. He wants this famine at this precise time so that the Israelites will move to Egypt because they have no other reason to move to Egypt except by necessity. He wants them there for those 400 years so that Moses can be born and lead them out and lead them to uh, judgment upon the land of Canaan. All of this is God's big story. Little, little events here that we read in chapter 41, all telling this big story of God's redemptive plan. All right, um, as we jump into the text, number one, the plans of God are often hidden from unbelievers. The plans of God are often hidden from unbelievers. For our kids, unbelievers need someone to tell them about God's word. Bible tells us that unbelievers, without the, the leading of the Holy Spirit, without their eyes being open to spiritual things, the things of God are foolishness. Pharaoh gets a direct revelation from God here, right? Like God gives him these dreams, and he has no idea what God is saying to him. No idea. Um, he, he's confused. It, it, it's foolishness to him. He, he doesn't know what God's trying to say to him. He's not even sure what God is trying to say to him. Uh, which God we're even talking about here. He's completely confused and baffled by this. And it it weighs on him. It weighs on him. He wakes up in the middle of the night. And, and, you know, sometimes when you you read this story, um, you think about it from a Sunday school standpoint, but it's possible that his dream was very graphic. Um, Cows eating each other and devouring devouring each other. I mean, he wakes up, and I don't think he had a cartoon dream about cows, right? Like, this is probably a very graphic, because he wakes up kind of terrified about this. Um, the, the cows that were a picture of Egypt's prosperity are in the Nile River, cooling off, staying away from the gnats and the flies, and they come out, and they're eaten by skinny and ugly cows. He, he talks about it later when he's relaying the dream back to Joseph. He says, I've never seen anything so disgusting as what these cows looked like. And what's crazy is that as they eat the fat cows, they don't become fat themselves. They stay still uh, mangy and, and nasty looking and, and very skinny and uh, very unhealthy. So he's concerned. God gives him direct revelation. He has no idea what God is trying to tell him. Um, and so for us here in New Testament times, adults and children, we need to remember, we need to be reminded that people around us, family members, friends, co-workers, neighbors that are unbelievers, They don't know God's word. They don't understand God's word. And they need someone to tell them God's word. That's exactly where we find Pharaoh. Pharaoh is in a position where he does not understand. And he can't draw upon the Holy Spirit's wisdom and guidance. And he can't pray to this God because he doesn't know this God. And he's gotten a word from God and he doesn't know what to do with it. He doesn't know what it means. It's significant too to think about the fact that um, the meaning of the dreams are withheld from Pharaoh This is significant because Pharaoh, whoever was Pharaoh at the time, was kind of viewed as God incarnate for the Egyptian gods. Like he had that type of spiritual presence. So we talk about Jesus being God incarnate, right? Like it's God in human form. Pharaoh kind of held that position for Egypt in their minds. He's he's God incarnate for them. The gods that they worship, here is a human form, a human manifestation of the gods that we love and worship the gods that we try to submit to, the gods that we sacrifice to. So this is, this is alarming for him, and it's probably humbling for him to have to admit, as God incarnate for us, I've received messages from the gods that I do not understand. 
I mean, this is difficult for him because he should be the one that understands. He should be the one that can understand what's about to happen, and he doesn't. And so God is withholding the meaning of this dream from him. And he's having to admit that he cannot communicate with the gods clearly. You'll remember when Moses shows up and and God brings the plagues, all, all that development is meant to show that the God of Israel is better than the gods of Egypt, right? Every plague is an attack on an Egyptian God. Every plague shows that the God of Israel is far superior to that God of Egypt, that ultimately God constructs that whole situation to ultimately show his glory. He wants the Egyptian people to recognize that he is the sole God. That starts even back here at this point. Before Moses and before those Israelites are even on the scene, God is already at play within the Egyptian hearts, and he's showing that the God of Israel is better, um, that, the, that the God incarnate of Egypt, Pharaoh, can't communicate with the gods adequately enough. But what's also important to note is that the meaning of the dreams are withheld from the wisest Egyptians. The meaning of the dreams are withheld from the wisest Egyptians. Now, here's what's significant about this is that these guys aren't posers and they're not frauds, right? Like these aren't people that that volunteer and say that they know what's going on so that they can be Pharaoh's wise men and then they're just making stuff up all the time. That's not the case. Um, If you want to jot down these passages, Exodus 7.11, Exodus 7.22, in Exodus 8, 7, in all three of these passages, there's references to the Pharaoh's wise men when Moses is on the scene. And you'll remember, Moses shows up and starts doing miraculous works. He casts his stick down, and it turns into a snake. Um, he starts to turn the water into the blood, the Nile River into blood. In these passages, we're told these guys start doing the same things. Like, they start mimicking and and modeling what Moses is doing. Um, says that they relied upon their, their dark magic or their dark crafts to do this. We've talked before in the Old Testament, um, and this is where I believe, uh, and some of my eschatology is shaped by this, that in the Old Testament, God allowed Satan's forces to be really good at blinding the nations that the nations worshiped false gods, but I believe they did it not completely ignorantly. They were seeing things that kind of, in their minds, warranted their worship. I think we have demonic activity taking place here in Egypt where these wise men are able to do things um, that, that are unexplainable to the average Egyptian. That's why Pharaoh keeps these guys close to him. It's why he relies upon them and expects them to come through here because they've done things like this in the past. They've been able to know things and interpret things and do magical things for him. Now, I think there's a shift in the New Testament where I don't think that that's as prevalent today because um, I would say that that God and Christ has has done a, a binding of Satan in such a way where the nations aren't being blinded this way anymore. But here in the Old Testament, they're able to do things. Now, what's important to note is that they can't turn the Nile from blood back to water, right? Like, they're, they're, they're mimicking and, and trying to do the exact same things that the God of Israel is doing. They can't reverse it. They can't attack the God of Israel. Um, and so they have limited power that God gives to them, but they can't usurp God's power. 
Here, they, they come and they say, you know what? We have no clue either, Pharaoh. No clue. And what's crazy to me is that he doesn't threaten them with their lives. He's not pressuring them, and yet you don't have even an educated guess being given here. Right? Like, these guys aren't even trying to figure this out. I mean, they're completely stumped by it. Now, I don't know if it's just because I've read this story so many times and heard this story so many times, but if you, and I would like to think that if I had no prior history with Genesis 41 and you just sat down and told me, this is a dream and this has significance for the future, what do you think it means? I like to think that I could at least come up with something close to the actual meaning because it's not real confusing, right? I mean, you've got good cows and, and skinny cows. And, and, and I think you could probably, if you're smart, like these guys are supposed to be, kind of figure out, hey, this may have to do with prosperity and famine. And is it seven years, seven days? I don't know what the seven means for sure, but it's probably some type of time frame. Like, I like to think that I could at least get close because this isn't real. I mean, this is not like revelation stuff where you're just like, I don't know what, what's going on here. Like, this is a, there's a lot of different elements here. I mean, you got fat cows and skinny cows, and the corn replicates that, and it's like, they don't even have a guess. And I think this is God veiling them and confusing them too, that, that he wants Joseph to have that type of value to Pharaoh. And I think he withholds even this from the, the magicians who have been able to do things in the past. Here God says, the demonic powers will not be allowed to, to operate here. You're, you're not going to be able to even guess at what's happening here. You're going to be completely confounded and completely confused when it comes to this. The implication for us here is that we must remember that unbelievers around us are ignorant of the future that lies ahead of them. We must remember that unbelievers around us are ignorant of the future that lies ahead of them. So Pharaoh... The Egyptians, they're seven years away from one of the worst famines that Scripture describes. And they don't know it's coming. And they have no idea that they're supposed to prepare for it. And even when God speaks directly to them, because they're spiritually dead, they still don't comprehend the danger that they're in. And it's only when one of God's people show up are they even made aware of the future that they are going to endure. It's a reminder to us in the New Testament that the unbelievers that are around us, the ones that we work with, the ones that we live near, the ones that we share hobbies with, the ones that we see at the ballpark every Saturday, it's those people who have a similar future ahead of them, a, a destructive future ahead of them, and they're ignorant of it. Right? They, they don't know that it's coming. And it's our great privilege to tell them this is, a, this is a great privilege that Joseph has. God allows him to be a useful tool to communicate to a whole nation how they can be saved. And we get that same privilege. God includes us in his plan of redemption to be able to share with others a future that they don't know about and how they can be spared from it. The plans of God are often hidden from unbelievers, and he uses human beings to unveil that to them. The implication for us is that we need to keep that in mind and remember that the unbelievers around us are ignorant of what lies ahead of them. Number two, the plans of God should be proclaimed by believers. 
The plans of God should be proclaimed by believers. For our kids, Christians should be the one to tell others about God's word. Christians should be the ones to tell others about God's word. The plans of God should be proclaimed by believers. It says that Pharaoh wakes up here and he has no idea what God's trying to tell him. He tells the dreams to other unbelievers, but in verse 8, there was none who could interpret them to Pharaoh. And it's only in verse 9 when the chief cupbearer, the butler, says to Pharaoh, I remember my offenses today. When Pharaoh was angry with his servants and put me and the chief baker in custody in the house of the captain of the guard, we dreamed on the same night. And a young Hebrew was there with us, a servant of the captain of the guard. And when we told him, he interpreted our dreams to us, giving an interpretation to each man according to his dream. And as we interpreted to us, so it came about, I was restored to my office and the baker was hanged. Then Pharaoh sent and called Joseph. They quickly brought him out of the pit. And when he had shaved himself and changed his clothes, he came in before Pharaoh and Pharaoh said to Joseph, I've had a dream and there is no one who can interpret it. I've heard it said of you that when you hear a dream, you can interpret it. And Joseph answered Pharaoh, it's not, from, it's not in me. God will give Pharaoh a favorable answer. Number one here, we should embrace the privilege of being part of God's plan. We should embrace the privilege of being part of God's plan. He gives credit to God for the dream interpretations that are about to happen. I think it's significant too. He doesn't ask for a bargain or a deal here, right? He doesn't say, hey, it's great that I'm here now because I, I need to talk to you about some things too. Like one of your guys, uh, his wife falsely accused me. I'm not even supposed to be here, right? Like, like my brothers put me here. I'm not supposed to be a slave. I'm a prince back home. I'm inheriting all of my dad's stuff. Let's work out a deal here. You tell me your dreams, I'll interpret for you because you don't have anywhere else to turn, right? Like you've already played your cards. You've already said, I mean, clearly the only reason I'm here is because you have nowhere else to turn to. And then on top of that, you've told me that, right? Like you've already laid all your cards out. I know the deck that you're playing with. You have nowhere else to turn. He could easily turn this to his advantage and say, I'm only gonna tell you what you want to hear if you let me out of here. Right? But he, he immediately says, you know what? This isn't about me. This is about God. He's the one who gives interpretations. If God has spoken to you, then I'll be able to tell you what's going on and what's taking place. Right? He considers it a privilege to participate in God's plan here. Um, he never views himself as being forgotten by God. Right? Like in the midst of being in prison for two years and not seeing God's deliverance, he still believes that, that God is at work for him. He obviously still believes that he's connected in a right way to Yahweh or he wouldn't presume that he can interpret dreams still, right? We've said this. He hasn't lost sight of the fact that the dreams that he had as a kid are still going to come true at some point because if he had believed that, 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 that those were never gonna happen, he would have also lost faith in his ability to interpret dreams and he hasn't. He stands boldly before Pharaoh and says, yes, Yes, God can give you this interpretation here. He hasn't lost sight of God's work in his life despite the trials that he's been going through. He still believes that God's working in him and around him. So we should embrace the privilege of being a part of God's plan. And number two, we should communicate the fullness of God's plan. We should communicate the fullness of God's plan. As he begins to work through these dreams, ultimately Joseph is declaring that God controls not only Israel, but Egypt as well. 
God controls the destiny of Egypt. And what Joseph reveals about these dreams here is that this is more than just what will happen. He's revealing to Pharaoh, this is what is supposed to happen, right? Like he's, he's telling him, this is what my God plans to do in your land. And that's a bold proclamation because in these nations, the way their false gods would have worked, they were, they were part of their culture, right? So like this nation had their gods, this nation had their gods, and it was very culturally driven. And you kind of believed that your gods kind of operated in your, your culture, your nation, and you weren't really concerned about other nations and how they were interacting with that God. I mean, think about it. The people that show up on our doorsteps that are presenters of false religions, they're all just a perversion of, of ours, right? Like they, they come talking about Jesus. They come talking about the Bible they just have a completely different spin on it. They have a twist to it. Like they have false doctrines incorporated into it. I, I've yet to have somebody show up at my doorstep. I've yet to have some nation or some people group send people to my doorstep who show up and say, I don't know about Jesus. He doesn't factor into our religion at all. Let me tell you about this, right? Like, like the people that were following those kind of religions, they weren't really concerned about evangelizing other nations. It was, these are our God's this is our nation, like, we're just kind of inclusive here, like, we don't really think about outside perspectives of how God might be working in other nations. He works here in our nation. And for Joseph to stand up here before Pharaoh, he's saying, you know what, my God, he works in your land too, not just mine. Like, that, that was a complete break from what their mindset would have even been. He says, my God does things in your land that your gods can't prevent. I mean, it was a declaration that my God's better than your God. Um, it's, hey, there's a famine coming. Don't even bother praying to your gods because it will happen. He says, this is what God has already ordained to happen. I mean, this is, this is, a, this is a bold proclamation by Joseph here. And, and, and it should be an encouragement to us because it's a reminder to us to not get too boxed in with how we think God works, right? Like we're, we're probably at times even in error of thinking that that God's only at work in the lives of people that we know. Like, it's great to hear Yvonne share about this family that she has encountered last week who's been praying to our God, and God is at work in their family, and we've never met them before, right? Like, that's the God that we serve. We serve a God who's in control of all nations and all peoples. He's that type of God. He doesn't just work in, in, in our midst. He doesn't just work with the people that we know. He's at work globally. And that's what Joseph's proclaiming here. He says, uh, just to clue you in, you've never met this God, but, but Yahweh, that's what we call him, he's about to do something in your nation, and, and you're not going to be able to stop it. You're not going to be able to prevent it. The dreams contain both good news and bad news. He basically says, if you don't do something here, the end result in your nation is going to be cannibalism. Like, that's kind of the, this is kind of where this is going, and it's, it's interesting to note that if you research some of Egypt's history, there have been two times in their, uh, in their history where they had to resort to cannibalism because of famine. He's saying if, if something doesn't change here, that's the type of famine that you're going to endure. And so there's good news and there's bad news, which is true of the gospel as well, right? Like we're talking about what we're supposed to share with unbelievers. And, and we can't just be guilty of sharing the good news of who Jesus is. We have to share the, the reason that Jesus is good news, right? That there's bad news that our sin separates us from God, and that our desires and, and, and attempts to be good fall far short of his glory. We have to include the bad news with the good news, 
right? Because Joseph has both. He says, there's good news here. You're about to have seven years of, of awesome, and then you're going to have seven years of, of really bad. And I've also got some advice for you about how to endure the bad. And so there's, there's good news and bad news entwined in Joseph's message. The same is true for us as we try to communicate the gospel. The dreams declare that Pharaoh cannot cause or avoid the future. That This is set to happen, right? This isn't up for debate. In Genesis chapter 41, verse 32, and the doubling of Pharaoh's dream means that the thing is fixed by God and God will shortly bring it about. This can't be avoided. That he's not asking him to repent of something to avoid this, right? Like Jonah shows up and tells Nineveh, God's going to bring judgment on your city. They repent, and God doesn't bring judgment upon their city. This isn't so much judgment as God moving Israel to Egypt, right? And that will happen. God's already declared that it'll happen, that they're going to be there for 400 years before they go conquer Canaan. So this isn't a, hey, if you don't change, this is going to happen. This is, this is going to happen regardless of what you do. Regardless of you praying to your gods, my God is going to bring a famine to your land. And then he gives advice to Pharaoh, because basically accompanying, uh, accompanying advice offers a solution to the problem, right? So he gives them good news, bad news, but then tells Pharaoh basically how to, how to be included in the good news. How can this be good for you, Pharaoh? And Joseph offers that to him. He tells him, he says, um, you need to pick a wise man. You need to set him over the land of Egypt. You need to have sub-leaders underneath him. You need to have some type of rationing system that takes advantage of the prosperous years. He says a normal handling of the prosperity is not going to suffice. He says the prosperity, you guys are going to squander it just like every other human being that gets a raise and starts to live under those means now, right? Like everybody that gets a raise typically increases their, their way of life so that they don't really save anything. Right? Most of us, when we get raises, we just adjust our life to now reflect the raise that we've gotten. He says, if you don't do something special here, you're just going to keep uh, prospering for seven years and just eat it all away so that when seven years of famine come, it'll still be a famine. He says, you're going to have to be proactive here. You're going to have to pick a leader who's going to have leaders under him, and they're going to have to have a rationing system. They're going to have to work together for us to survive this. So he gives them this necessary advice. The implication for us, we must remember that God holds the keys to the future rather than earthly kings. It's timely for us in the midst of our election season to remember that God holds the keys to the future rather than any earthly leader, right? He's, he's telling him, he says, look, it doesn't matter what you try to do, doesn't matter who, who you pray to, this isn't changing. Seven years of famine are coming and they're gonna be bad years. And there's nothing you can do to change that. I'm not telling you to repent of anything. I'm not telling you to do something different. This has to happen. Joseph doesn't fully probably understand it, but we know it has to happen. Israel has to get down there. They have to be there for 400 years before they can go back to Canaan. God holds the future rather than earthly kings. Number three, the plans of God demand a response when understood. The plans of God demand a response when understood. For our kids, we need to get ready for God's future plans. 
The plans of God demand a response when understood. That's true of God's word, right? Like God's word is not meant to return void, right? It's meant to produce change. It's meant to produce a response. God directly reveals things about himself so that we'll trust him more, which will lead to obedience and love. God's word, God speaks, and we are supposed to respond. We saw that in Genesis 1 and 2, right? God spoke and creation responded to his speaking. God has spoken to Pharaoh, and it demands some type of response from him. Number one, the dreams are not meant to be avoided. I've already said this. The goal is not to change the course of history. God has not brought this to Pharaoh's attention for him to then attempt to avoid famine. That's not the goal here. It's not, okay, if we cover ourselves in sackcloth and ashes, can we get out of this? No, God says this is happening. It's a good thing. It will result in good for my people. They're going to be starving, and it's going to cause them to come to Egypt, and that's going to be a good thing because they're going to grow up into a great nation there. God says this is happening, okay? Not meant to be avoided. Number two, though, the dreams are meant to develop a response. And the response that we're left to wonder here as we're reading through this is, Will Pharaoh believe God and make adjustments to his plans accordingly? Will Pharaoh believe God and make adjustments to his plans accordingly? And that's the same thing that we're, we're doing when we present the gospel, right? The gospel confronts people, confronts them in the midst of their plans and their desires and their way of life. And when the gospel is faithfully presented, it demands a response. Will you trust the message that's been presented to you and will you change your plans accordingly? Will you submit to the creator of the universe who has called you to forgiveness and obedience? Will you do that? That's what's being presented to Pharaoh here. Will you change your plans and believe the God that I'm communicating to you about? Joseph calls for a response to the plans of God that he has shared. Pharaoh responds in faith about his future and takes necessary steps to preserve himself and his people. I wouldn't doubt for a second that this Pharaoh, this one right here, may be in heaven one day. Um, why? Because to me, what he does here fits right along with what we read in Hebrews about some of the other people of God and how they responded to God speaking to them, right? To me, you could, you could say, by faith, Pharaoh heard the interpretations of his dreams and appointed Joseph and others in belief that famine was coming, right? Like, I, I wouldn't have any difficulty having that included in Hebrews and raising my eyes to that. Now, it's not, so I can't tell you for sure. But to me, this is Old Testament faith here. He's being given revelation and he's responding to it and saying, you know what? Your God's better than my God's. We can't stop it. And so we'll embrace it. Much like Rahab. Rahab says, hey, your God's about to clean house in Canaan. Can I be on your team now? I don't want to be on our team anymore. I want to be on your team. And so that's what Pharaoh's kind of doing here. He says, you know what, Joseph, you're in charge now. Tell us what to do. Tell us how to endure this. Um, Joseph responds in faith about the future and works diligently to preserve Egypt and the surrounding nations. He never loses sight of the coming famine despite the seven years of prosperity. As you read through here in Genesis 41, Joseph embraces his new leadership and he begins to tour the nation of Egypt and he starts to set things in order. He starts to develop this rationing system where 20% of what God gives to them during these years of prosperity come back to the government. Like it's a high tax season for them. 20%. 20%. 20% of what you've made comes back to us, and we're going to store it up to protect you so that when you need it during the times of famine, that we're going to be okay. 
And Joseph never, lose sight, never loses sight of that. And what's crazy is that Pharaoh continues to trust Joseph as the famine sets in. Right? Like, Pharaoh doesn't lose sight of it. It's not that Pharaoh is just engulfed in the prosperity and then gets to the point and says, you know what, I don't really think we need Joseph. You know what, like, we can probably handle this without a foreigner doing it for us. What happens here at the end? It says when the famine starts to set in, um, <clears throat> verse 53, the seven years of plenty that occurred in the land of Egypt came to an end. Seven years of famine began to come, and as Joseph had said, and there was famine in all the lands, but in the land of Egypt there was bread, and when all the land of Egypt was famished, the people cried to Pharaoh for bread, and what did Pharaoh say? Go to Joseph. That's why I hired him seven years ago, because I really believed this was going to happen, and now that it's here, it's time for him to earn his keep, right? Like I gave him a nice ring, gave him nice clothing, gave him a wife, gave him a nice job, gave him a house to live in, time for him to earn his keep. Now we really need him to manage the famine. Neither one of them lose sight. Neither one of them seem to doubt God's fulfillment of these dreams. The implication for us is that we must remember that knowing God's plans for the future does not put an end to our planning and action, but instead properly directs it. Think about that first that statement for a minute. We must remember that knowing God's plan for the future does not put an end to our planning and action, but instead properly directs it. See, some people want to say, well, if God knows the future and the future has already been determined, then we'll just sit back and watch it happen. Like, we can't do anything to change the future. If it's already been set, if it's already happened, then what's our job in this? And what we fail to realize is that, no, by knowing and trusting that God knows the future, And by God giving us enough information about the future, it actually properly tells us how to spend our time so that we don't waste it. As an example, Matthew 28, 18 through 20, what does it say? It says, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them and teaching them everything about Jesus. Why? So they'll worship him. And then Revelation 7 says, hey, I saw a vision in heaven. You know what I saw? I saw people from every tribe, nation, and tongue worshiping before the throne of Jesus. It means that Matthew 28 happens, right? That the gospel goes out and the great commission is fulfilled. And the wrong response would be to say, oh, that happens for sure? Then I don't have to talk to my neighbor about Jesus. Instead, the proper response is to say, oh, so what you're saying is if I talk about Jesus to people like my neighbor, they're probably gonna end up in heaven. Like I don't have to wonder if the gospel works. The, The future tells me that it does. You've seen the future, John. You've told us. Every tribe, nation, and tongue is represented. So I can confidently leave my family. Chris and Melissa can confidently leave and go to Uganda and know this isn't a waste of time. There's going to be Ugandans around the throne of Jesus. They can go confidently believing that. So we have to keep in mind that when we read about promises of what God is going to do, that it doesn't give us license to sit on the couch and be lazy and say, oh, God's got this, God's going to handle it. Now, Joseph says there's a famine coming, and the only way for us to endure it is to prepare properly for it. It's a reminder to us to do the same. Number four, and we'll wrap up with this. The plans of God are designed for the good of his people. The plans of God are designed for the good of his people. For our kids, God's plans are always good, and God is going to work good in the midst of this famine. Number one, Believers have the responsibility to remember God in times of need and in times of plenty. In our discussion groups this morning, we talked, what, what temptations now does Joseph face? 
The question is, will Joseph continue to need God in his prosperity? Or will he start to rely upon the provisions of Egypt? It's been easy to, maybe, maybe it's easier to trust God when we know we need him, right? In the midst of a prison, in the midst of a pit, we, we know we need to call out to God because we're failing. We can't help ourselves. But now that he's in a position of authority and being blessed, will he continue to rely upon God? Another question I ask, will Pharaoh succeed in making him Egyptian? Right? He gives him a new name, gives him a wife. He's, he's being completely engulfed in Egyptian culture. In fact, he shaves. Right? Like They make him shave. If you've seen movies about Egypt, you know they all have uh, shaved faces. A lot of them have shaved heads. A lot of them have like the mascara on. Like That's their culture. And they, they, they make Joseph look like that when they bring him before Pharaoh. Get the Hebrew beard off. Get the hair off. Let's shave him. Let's make him look Egyptian. And, and Pharaoh's probably thinking, it'll probably help if the people think you're at least somewhat Egyptian because I just put you in power and you're like second in command of our nation. Be easy for Joseph to say, you know what? Egypt's a lot better than home. It is a lot better than what God had promised, promised me and my descendants. Egypt's pretty nice. Um, he could have easily been swallowed up by Egypt. But the answer is at the end of his life, and we'll get here in Genesis, he wants to go home. Right When all said and done and, and his family moves down there, he says, you know what? You guys aren't going to stay here. Egypt's nice, but it's not home. Egypt's nice, but it hasn't been promised to us. And he says, when you guys leave and I'm dead and gone, make sure you take your, my bones with you. He will have lived most of his life in Egypt by the time he dies. He says, you know what? This isn't where I'm from. I don't want to be here long term. It's a testimony to his belief in God's promises. Number two, believers who trust in God's goodness are set free from the past and can enjoy the present while longing for the future. I love this section here about him naming his sons. And I heard some of our groups talking about this. It says in verse 50, Before the year of famine came, two sons were born to Joseph. Asenath, the daughter of Potiphera, priest of On, bore them to him. And Joseph called the name of the firstborn Manasseh. For, he said, God has made me forget all my hardship and all my father's house. The name of the second he called Ephraim, for God has made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. Joseph demonstrates this sentence here. He trusts in God's goodness, and because of that, he's set free from the bitterness of his past. He doesn't, hang, he doesn't have to hang on to his past and the trials that he's endured. He doesn't have to hang on to the wrongs that people have done to him. He says, you know what? God's using all those things for good purposes, so I can enjoy the present, and I can see God's blessing and I can see God's fruitfulness in my life. And I'm going to name my kids Hebrew names. Why? Because this isn't our home and we're going back, right? Like there's a future that he's looking to as well in the way that he names his boys. But he names his sons as a sign that he trusts in what God is doing. He names his first son Manasseh, which means forgetfulness. I put in my notes, we need to forget those things that would cause us to forget God, right? We don't forget God but we, f- we should forget anything and everything that would cause us to forget God. Specifically, some of the things that uh, we're dissatisfied with in our life, harms and hurts and, and, and trials that oftentimes cause people to be disenchanted with God. They say, you know what? Uh, if God was real, he wouldn't have done that to me. If God was real, that wouldn't have been allowed to happen to me. What does Psalm 103, though, say? Psalm 103 reminds us, don't forget God and his goodness to us. Psalm 103, verse 1, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits, who forgives all your iniquity, 
who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy, who satisfies you with good so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. We should forget everything that would cause us to forget God. Joseph says, I've forgotten. I've forgotten my family that that has uh, been taken from me. I've forgotten the trials that I endured. God has been so good to me. I've been freed from being reminded of those things. He's not focused on his past suffering, but instead rejoices over his present blessing. The implication for us, we must remember that God's blessing towards us as his people is meant to extend to other nations as well. And this is where we should be different than all these other religions, that we should care about what God's doing in other nations. And we should want them included in God's plan. Remember, God promised Abraham, I'm going to bless those who bless you. And you're going to be a blessing to all nations. We know that's ultimately fulfilled in Jesus. He's the ultimate yes to that promise. But we see this playing out as well right now. That while the others were suffering through the famine, Egypt was made available to help them. Egypt prospered. Egypt prospered during the famine. They're selling their reservoir to people, right? The Hebrews show up. Joseph's brothers show up. They have to purchase food. So in the midst of famine, when everybody's suffering and dying and needing food, Egypt is prospering. Remember Isaac prospered in famine too? Remember we said that he almost went to Egypt, but God said, don't go down to Egypt, I'm going to take care of you. And it says that he was prospering greatly while everybody else couldn't get their crops to grow. Egypt prospers as a result of God's promise that I'll bless those who bless you. One-fifth of their prosperity sustained them and many others for seven years. That tells you how good the prosperity was that you could take 20% of what you earned this year and live off of that for a whole year, plus other people can live off of it. Like, that's the numbers that we're dealing with. God gave them a bunch of stuff, and then 20% of it came back. They kept it. Next year, a bunch of stuff, 20% comes back. And then for seven years, they live off of one-fifth of what God gave them. And not just them, but all the surrounding nations as well. God was very good to them for seven years, and he sustained them for the seven bad years. All right, two points of application, and we're done. Application number one, trust in God. Trust in a God that can turn our circumstances quickly. Trust in a God that can turn our circumstances quickly. And this goes both ways. We need to trust in a good God who oftentimes will bring trials into our life very quickly. Joseph goes from wearing a coat of many colors and being second in command in his father's house to being in a pit, to being sold into slavery in 24 hours. 24 hours, it's taken from him just like that. But he also serves a God who can flip it the other way in 24 hours, right? He goes to bed in prison, wakes up and starts serving food and picking up trash, and within 24 hours, he's the second in command in Egypt, just like that. We serve a God who can turn our circumstances quickly, which should give us hope in the midst of trials, right? but should also keep us content when we're in the midst of prosperity. Paul says, I've learned the secret of contentment in Philippians. You can take everything away from me or you can give me everything. I still trust in my God who's the source of all of it. All right, number two, faithfulness in little things will oftentimes lead to greater things. We're called to work faithfully in times of trial and in times of blessing. Joseph keeps working hard even when things are going his way now, right? He worked hard when he was in trial, 
worked his way up, but he works hard with this new job, doesn't, doesn't coast, doesn't say, okay, now I've arrived, I've gotten my promotion. He works hard. He gets a meaningful job out of it. He gets a family out of it. I think this is a testimony to the fact that he was faithful when Potiphar's wife came tempting him. He said no. And God says, you know what? You're ready to be married now. You're ready to have a family now. Right? He's faithful in the little things, the little opportunities to show obedience, and God gives him greater opportunity to show obedience as well. All right? And then for our family worship uh, questions, those kind of go side by side with these things that we can discuss, and Adam will post these um, this week for you. Number one, what does the word contentment mean, and what are some things I might struggle to be content with? Um, Talking about being content in prosperity and in times of want. What does the word contentment mean? How can our kids understand that better this week, and what are some things that they might struggle to be content with, and how can we help lead them in contentment? And then number two, what are some little things that God has given to me as a child? So talking about our children, what are some little things that God has given to me that I can be faithful in right now? Um, but this is also true for us as well, for those of us that maybe aspire to more. What are some things that God has given to us right now um, that we can be faithful in? And, and as we show faithfulness in that, that God may entrust more to us. All right, let's pray together. Lord, as we pause right now for a minute and uh, come to you corporately, uh, Lord, we do want to praise you and thank you um, that you are a God who is in control of every single thing that's happening on this earth right now. God, we're thankful that you're not a God that's exclusively our God. God, we're thankful that there are people asleep on the other side of the world right now that you're watching over and caring for that you love just as in, in, intently as you love us. We're thankful that you're a God who controls all nations and all world leaders and all the developments on this globe today, and that you're working all of them for your greater purposes. We're thankful that there's not uh, any being in existence that can overrule your plans, that you're a God who says this is what will happen, and there's nothing that can be done to stop that. God, we're thankful that you've put people into our life who don't know your plans and that you've given us the great privilege to share it with them. Father, I pray that we'd see the gospel message within this, that Pharaoh and the Egyptians had a, had a, a future ahead of them that was going to destroy them. And you sent somebody. You sent somebody to share good news with them. And they responded with all the faith that they had. They responded and trusted in you as a superior God. Help us to take that same message to those around us. Help us to communicate both the good news and the bad news. Help us to communicate the need to respond in the same way that Joseph said, Pharaoh, you've got to do something with this, and here's what you should do. God, help us to be the type of people that will take the gospel and communicate the response to it, that people must repent and turn in faith to you. God, I pray that we would be content with what you're doing in our life. Pray that it would free us from any bitterness, trials that we go through, that we would not hold grudges towards others, that we would be people that seek reconciliation, that we would see your blessings in the midst of trials as Joseph did, that we would be free like he is to forget past things and then rejoice in current blessings. God, I pray that we'd be faithful in the little things that you've given to us so that you can give us more things to do in your plan. Help us to see that you want to include us more and more and that we would do our job 
faithfully as Joseph did. Lord, we love you and we praise you and thank you that you're a God who rules everything and, uh, and heals, God. Um, we, we praise you and thank you for the positive reports we've heard this morning of how you're working in, in, the, in the midst of us. God, we pray that you would work on the other side of the, the world right now with Chris and Melissa. God, I pray they'd be able to sleep tonight and get the rest that they need. I pray that you would allow their efforts with the gospel to be fruitful with the people they're interacting with. We praise you and thank you for who you are. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Sovereign Hope Church podcast. We trust that you've been encouraged by the word. For more information about our church, please visit our website at www.sovhope.org. Again, that's www.sovhope.org.